and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. On today's show, we are going to be discussing a specific product, Zalutan. We are using this as a case study for educational purposes only. This is in no way an endorsement or recommendation to use Zyotan off-label. We are not providing medical advice. You should always consult with your physician about appropriate treatment for your condition. Welcome to Raising Rare. Today, we're going to get an update on some exciting work that Sanath has been working on for a year or so, and he's started to actually apply to his son. But before we get into that, um, I just thought we'd do a little catch-up. Um, you know, this is our second episode of the season. How's Raghav doing, and how are you guys uh, adjusting to having a preschooler? Oh, it's very interesting. He is still a happy little kid uh, going to his preschool. He's now way more excited to get into a stroller uh, because he thinks he's going to go to his school. So I, I don't know, like he might, he might just, you know, not want to, not want to come home for a little longer and, and hang out at school. They seem to be, seem to be having a lot of fun there. Well, that's fantastic to hear. And, and just to hear that, that his stroller isn't just, oh no, we're going to the doctor. Or when you put him in the, in the van, we're going to the doctor, aren't we? No, we're going to school. You're going to see your friends. So cool. So cool. That's right. And it changed quite a bit because I remember there was a point in time where uh, any time we put him in the car means we're going to the doctor, right? And that changed now. And he truly thinks we're going to school and going to have fun, even if you're going to take him to, a, to do a lab work. So that's exciting. Yeah, it's amazing how kids can, can adapt to that and, uh, and pick up their own habits. They know what's happening, what time of day. And now, yeah, you can get him to get to his lab work maybe easier. That's, that's another benefit of it. So today we're going to go a little bit deeper into the treatment that you are, are trying for Raghav. We have spoken before about your high-throughput screening study that you commissioned and all of that work and, and how you looked at the results that, that first came out. And then we took our break. So maybe you could remind people of, of just briefly what that process was for high-throughput screening and and how you started to make the decision. Yeah, so um, when Raghav got, after Raghav got his diagnosis, uh, we realized there were a lot of drugs that could potentially benefit him. We did what is called a low throughput screening, which is just manually looking through literatures, finding drugs that could benefit him. And that process led us to starting Raghav on five different treatments. And over the course of two years, we have not seen a lot of improvements with these treatments, but we've still stuck uh, with them so far. In parallel, we started doing more scientific experiments, uh, trying to uncover uh, drugs that might give him more benefits. And this process is called a high-throughput drug screen. The idea is we take Raghav cells and run them through a panel of 4,000 to 6,000 drugs 
that have been FDA approved or that have seen some human exposure, uh, even if they are not currently in the market. Um, and we look for signals that show significant improvements um, in his cells with a specific drug. That process took about a year, finally got the results, we combed through all the results, and we narrowed down to about 10 drugs that could, that could potentially work and that are also available in the market today. And among those 10 drugs, we found the ones that had good safety profile because we obviously don't want anything to anything wrong to happen if we give the drug to Raghav. And we optimize for drugs that have good safety and also have good basic science, providing us a reason why this drug should be tried on humans. Um, that's the process that we followed to narrow down to this product called Xyluton that Raghav has gotten started. So Xyluton, that's a 5-lipoxygenase inhibitor. I, I worked with these a lot when I was in the lab three decades ago. It's basically blocking the generation or the formation of leukotrienes, which are inflammatory molecules that are involved in asthma. I've been to entire conferences on leukotrienes, so I don't think we should go into the biology. We don't have time today, and it's way over everybody's head. But but did you find this surprising? Um, and have you, what were the links you saw between GPX-4 and leukotrienes? Yeah, it's pretty surprising. Uh, and there's, there's, there, are, there are papers that had been published even before we ran the high throughput screening that link xyloton to you know, the antiferoptotic activity that it, it has. I don't know all the specifics off the top of my head, uh, but I, I think this seems to be an off-target effect of, of that molecule. And it seems to be very specific um, because there are no other 5-lipoxygenase inhibitors or anti-inflammatory molecules that showed up in the high-throughput screening as, as positive results. So there's definitely something that is very specific about xyluton that, that seems to make it work. Regardless, we'll take it, um, right? This is definitely a good signal for us to go and try it on humans. And at the end of the day, any cellular experiment can only give us so much information. We have to go to humans to know if it really works. And there are several challenges to, or barriers to, to, to getting a successful outcome in humans in the first place. Um, and so regardless of what it does, I only care about if it works in patients. Yeah, so it is an approved product, an FDA-approved product, which means it can be sold at, at a pharmacy. It just can't be marketed for things other than what it's indicated for, which is asthma. And I wondered, but because it's out there, it's approved, did this mean you could just go to your local pharmacy and pick it up? No, that's not how it works. Uh, these are prescription drugs, which means a physician has to write a prescription for the pharmacist to, to give the drug to us. And that's where the real challenge lies. Because this drug is approved for asthma, if you go to a pulmonologist and they diagnose you with asthma, they could very well write this prescription for you and you could be on this drug for however long you want. And insurance would happily cover it because you have a problem and here's a solution. But in Dragov's case, well, the problem is not defined. He has a disease called SSMD, but no one really knows about this disease. There is little clinical characterization, and there is basically no clinical trial establishing the connection between xyluton and this disease, right? We, we know some basic science experiments, some research experiments, but this is not FDA approved for this disease. And so there is a, an escape hatch, which is called off-label drug use. Uh, the idea is that 
physicians have the authority to write any prescription or any drug as a prescription for any disease. Well, that authority will be questioned if they go wild and start prescribing opioids and, and other crazy stuff. There are checks and balances in the medical system to make sure that doesn't happen. And if a physician abuses their authority, they would lose their license. That's their ultimate checks and balance, right? But in cases where there is reasonable scientific evidence, where there is reasonable safety data, a physician can exercise that judgment and write a prescription off-label. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Even before we got the high-throughput drug screening results, we worked with our physician and made sure they were comfortable with writing a prescription off-label. And all through the, the final stages of analysis, um, we focused on drugs that can be prescribed off-label because that's the fastest path to clinic. Absolutely. If you had to go for something that was still experimental, like you've done before, you'd have to go do an IND, you'd have to get the authority authorization to go forward with it. It's beyond just your physician making the choice. But I mean, for a physician, this is this is not a simple choice. And you had talked to him about off-label before, so he or she was probably very familiar with the idea. I think physicians know, and but maybe the public doesn't, that physicians can write prescriptions for any approved drug. They can't do it for experimental drugs. That's different. But they can do it for any approved drug for whatever they see fit. And that's something that's kind of like one of those little quirks in the system. But that's how cancer gets treated. That's how rare disease gets treated in, in this case. That's how diseases which are refractory to normal treatments that, that's how they find something to do. When a doctor says, I'd like to try something, they may actually be trying it. They, they don't always just know it. So I would just want to know, though, what was, the, what was that conversation like when you said, okay, so we think we found one. Here it is. What do we need to do to get a script written for this? Yeah, so the conversations actually started about a year and a half ago with a different physician, actually multiple physicians. I knew from the beginning that off-label is the way to go for fastest delivery of treatments. What wasn't clear to me was that physicians were reluctant writing prescriptions off-label. It's completely understandable, right? They're, they're, they're caring for the patient. They don't want to take the risk. And one, they don't want to take a, a risk on the patient. And two, they don't want to take a personal risk and potentially even a risk to the hospital, right? And so they're have been instances where people have told me, well, don't ask me about off-label because I don't want to get into trouble and go to jail. Well, no one's going to go, go to jail by prescribing a drug off-label. As long as you understand the science behind it, you're not, that, none of that is going to happen. But I've heard sentiments from, I don't want to go to jail to, well, this is not in my specialty to, I don't know what you're talking about to, I cannot read literature, like research papers. There's just a whole slew of reasons why physicians will not want to write prescriptions off-label. So when we started, when we moved to the Bay Area, we were looking for physicians that would be willing to work with us, that have already had experience working with other rare diseases, that have experience running clinical trials, that understand the risk-benefit profile when it comes to um, off-label prescriptions. And so we, we interviewed a bunch of physicians before we settled on one and made sure they were comfortable with the path we were taking. And, and this physician that is working with us to, on the Xyluton 
uh, was comfortable uh, with that path and they had prior experience and they worked with us very closely through the through the entire high throughput drug screening process to make sure they understood what was going in as inputs the assay what was being measured and and also the 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 gpx for biology so we were very thankful and fortunate that we found someone that is willing to to give this a shot because this is not a yeah it, it really required a conversation and i'm involved in something called participatory medicine and that's what you're practicing here you have the conversation and you work with each other to come up with solutions and i think that that's just a fantastic example of it it brings us to so you get the prescription written and now you need to get it paid for somehow and get it through the insurance companies. So what was that process like? Once we got the prescription written, we were worried about the cost. This this medicine cost $3,000 a month for a 30-day supply. While, yeah, you could argue it's not as expensive as a $600,000 per year drug, $3,000 a month is is like one person's full-time salary. Uh, and it's not cheap by any means. So we were first exploring just paying it ourselves for a month, just for a month, just to see if there's any safety safety issues that would come out of it. The second option was to do a separate fundraiser just for funding this trial with Raghav. And the third option was to see if we can use the existing pot of money that we had already raised to fund this drug for Raghav as sort of a trial, like a one-person trial before we expanded to other kids and we would be funding them as well. The last option was to talk to our insurance providers. I was very reluctant. I was basically not confident that our insurance would, would cover it at all. But Ramya was very insistent that we should explore that option because what if they cover by some magic? And so they did. We asked up our insurance. They said this needs prior authorization, but they were willing to do a 30-day supply just cover a 30-day supply without any, any paperwork. Unfortunately, we are only consuming about 30% of the, 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 the drug uh, concentration that we need or the maximum concentration that, the, uh, that we need. So we basically could last up to two and a half months with a 30-day supply of the drug because we are recompounding it, which I'll get into later. And so we got that one month and we sent over the, sent over the prior authorization paperwork from our physician's office and to our surprise, insurance covered it. They gave us a limited, like a one-year coverage for this drug and said, we'll reassess, time comes. I think I got lucky. I don't think all insurances would do this. I have no idea what happened in the back office and the insurance that pushed them over the edge to cover us. I just count ourselves lucky. I think that's one of those blessings you have to chalk up there. Say, this is something we don't need to worry about for at least a year now. Now, you mentioned something that you're only using 30% of the drug that that was in under that prescription. I, I'd like to know what you had to do here and how you did this because I know that the drug comes in a 600 milligram tablet, controlled release tablet. You can't give that to a, a toddler and, and that's not something Raghav could deal with anyway. So how did you get from the tablets that they supply to what you're actually giving him now. Yeah, and this this process again started like nine months ago when we were close to getting a result out of the high throughput screening. 
This is a consistent problem for Raghav. Because he cannot take pills orally, he cannot eat anything by mouth, we feed everything through his G-tube. And it has to be a liquid that goes through the G-tube. And more so, the the opening in the G-tube is about a six... It's called 16 French. I don't know, if you look at the opening, it looks less than like three millimeters big in diameter. It's like very tiny. So it has to be a very fine solution without any any sort of blockade or particles uh, that can block the G-tube. And so there, the first option was, well, let's take the pill, crush it at home, and powder it into a liquid and give it to him, right? Well, that's not going to work because there's no way we can crush a pill uh, that fine. We don't have the equipment to do that. The second option was to go talk to the manufacturers to see if they can provide us the, the raw materials that then we can convert it into a liquid. We'll try that. It's too expensive and, and it was just way too difficult. And the third option was to use something called a compounding pharmacy. These are pharmacies that um, would, would take the what's called an active pharmaceutical ingredient, which is the, the raw material that goes into making the pill and then, you know, mix it with, with any, any, any solution. This could be like a water-based solution or an oil-based solution to make sure the, the active ingredient is fully dissolving in that solution. And all of the, the chemistry for doing that is available for, for public consumption if you look at online. So if you look at the Orange Book for Xyluton or the USB monogram and stuff like that, they are websites basically that tells you how to take the Xyluton active ingredient and and make it soluble in whatever suspension that you want um, and so compounding pharmacies are capable of doing that so we found a compounding pharmacy we would get the tablets from cvs the tablets are super big by the way i i i don't think i can even swallow those tablets i hate swallowing tablets and so we would get to, give it to the compounding pharmacy they take 12 tablets e each time they crush it into a liquid with having about 20 milligrams per 5 ml concentration. And so, sorry, 100 milligrams per 5 ml. And then we take about 6 ml and give it to him every day, four times a day. That's how, that's how it works. Another wrinkle in that process is we have to recompound those every 14 days uh, because the Xyluton medication has not been established in the literature for you know long-term or should be stable in a suspension form in the long term. And so the default duration for this to be in a liquid form is 14 days. So it would take 12 tablets and compound them every 14 days. Well, that adds cost. And now I'm working with the insurance providers to see if they would cover the cost of compounding. Because if you're going to cover the cost of the drug, and if my son cannot take the drug, then why did you even cover it in the first place, right? So you got to cover the cost of compounding. Well, that's a different battle that I'm fighting. Yeah, that one will probably be a little bit more complex because it's less normal for them to, to have to go through that. Although I'm sure they're aware of it and they've got their specialists. It's interesting you talk about the stability. No one ever thinks about that. That little sell-by date or you know use-by date on your prescription. One of my colleagues, when I, when I worked back at Pfizer, said that line, that piece of data, costs about $50 million to establish, to understand, because you're using, you're consuming a lot of, a lot of the, the, the active pharmaceutical ingredient 
And just having it sit around for six months or a year or two years, and you have to look at it at the end and say, it's the same. So it's very technical, very high technology work to look at that to make sure that, yeah, this thing is stable. Or what do we need to do to make it stable? Do you have to refrigerate it? Do you have to freeze it? You ran into it as the default will be two weeks which means every two weeks you've got to go get a fresh batch because it can't sit anywhere for any amount of time just because you don't know how long it's stable. Wow. So I, I'm just reflecting back, you know, the first time we talked and yeah, here's the software engineer guy. Now he's talking like a, you know, a physical chemist. Um, amazing. So now that you've got it compounded, you've got it for you're giving it to him four times a day. It, it must metabolize fairly quickly if it if that's what's happening. Now you want to see what happens. So what are you doing to measure Raga's response to it or any progress or, or lack of progress um, of his of his SSMD? Yeah, so we're, we're doing three things. The first is a safety test. This is a, a lab work that he would do to assess any toxicity in his liver. Because this drug is will, will get metabolized in the liver, and that is where it seems to have the most toxicity effects. And we, we we are yet to get the get the first lab work. Hopefully this week. The second is a lab work to do what's called metabolomics. Before he started Xyluton, we did this lab work to assess about a thousand different chemical constituents in his blood and the levels of those constituents. And we would do a similar lab after a month of being in Zaluton, which would happen in the next couple of weeks. And we would reassess the chemical constituents of his blood and its concentrations. And we will compare to see what has significantly changed after he started the drug. That comparison is going to give us more information on what exactly Zaluton does in his body and try and separate out effects that are short term, which is he took the drug now and 15 minutes later, this compound, this chemical spiked up in his blood from effects that are long term, which is there is a, a more systemic change in his body that is causing higher levels of this enzyme or higher levels of this other protein. And then try and reason about why that should happen in his body and use that information to assess if it is actually having any positive effects. So it's not a direct outcome measure. It's not even a biomarker. These have not been established as markers that will change in the positive direction for his disease. Uh, but we are, we are trying to assess a broad variety of chemicals to see what changes occur in his blood. The last thing um, is, is an outcome measure. Uh, and an outcome measure in general is change in Raghav that he can feel in his day-to-day -day life. And that change for us is We've established that change to be his ability to grasp and hold on to objects for longer because we have not seen any change in that particular skill of his since birth. Uh, he's never regressed or he's not improved in that skill. And so we have a particular tie and we have a particular methodology of making him hold that tie and we measure the number of seconds he's able to hold it over time. Um, and we take about one measurement uh, every couple of weeks to see where he is at. It's not super clear if that has shown any significant changes. So I would I would still say no data in that front. Although we 
are not in the maximum dosage for xyloton yet. We established, uh, st statistically, we established a dosage for his age based on what is a, an effective dose for a 12-year-old, but that still doesn't help because that's more of a safety data point. We wanted to make sure he's able to get to this dose safely. And then once we get some more safety labs, we will dial up the dosage again to hopefully see a more profound impact uh, in his outcome measures. So more to come, uh, but so far, nothing worse. Everything is stable. I just want to talk about the measures that you're doing. I think it's it's brilliant to see that you've got a safety measure, you've got the metabolomics, which is, as you said, it's there's no established measure here. There's no biomarker. You are searching in an ocean of biomarkers to see if there's something that shows up. And then the outcomes. I actually think that's quite a clever and an elegant solution. Can he hold a specific toy for an amount of time? That's something that's measurable. You can make it consistent. It doesn't disrupt him. It's not painful or anything. It's just, hey, let's put the toy in his hand and Start the stopwatch and see how long it stays. I think that's really good. And most importantly, what you said is it's something that actually impacts his life. He wants to pick up all his toys, and and this will let him do that. So let's suspend our disbelief for a minute and say we're out there a year or two from now. You've gotten to the dose that, that seems to be maximal. What are your hopes for this? What do you hope to see? I, I don't know if I can suspend my disbelief, unfortunately. I don't have any hopes at all. You know, part of me, um, when I read posts on social media where, where other patient foundations say they found a drug coming out of the scientific experiment and they are truly thankful for having found this drug, I'm very hopeful for them. But another part of me is like, well, I've been there. And having been in that spot, I had absolutely no hope whatsoever and now that raga was on a drug i have absolutely no hope whatsoever um of, of, of for the future so i would i guess the the one one hope that we do have is nothing goes down for him if we get any significant improvements in his quality of life we will take it happily but we are not hoping for any of that i i've gotten to a point where i truly believe there are multiple ways to improve patients' quality of life, and drugs are one of them. If drugs work, fantastic, but you can't force it to work. And I think that it also, when you say you have no hope, what I'm hearing you saying is you're really becoming more objective about this. You're not, you're not, you're, you're, you're gonna wait and see and, and observe it, you know, show me the data, and then you'll say, yes, something's happened, as opposed to, I want this to happen so bad. And so I think that's, it's, it's a good outlook. I don't know how you do it, because um, I think that you are actually a very hopeful guy, um, but you're not hoping for anything specific. Yeah, and I think it, it, it happened, I, we've gotten into this mindset, both me and Ramya, because with Raghav, Anytime we, we had uh, an emotional response, he, prove, he would prove us wrong. Like, big time, he would. We thought, you know, he's going to 
eat by ate everything by mouth and when we were when we were wheeling him off his tube he fainted and proved ourselves wrong um he we thought you know well he has his baby teeth um and it's going to be awesome he proved, he proved us wrong right uh there there have been just way too many situations that are either significant or insignificant by many measures where our emotional response did not work and so we ought to be objective we always have to balance out facts versus um what we we train ourselves to believe right and try and look for the facts that make sense um and if the facts don't make sense then we are ambivalent um i'm okay with uh, things not working out the way i want i'm okay with things working out the way i want yeah you've you've come a long way and i think that the um the the beauty of all that is you still love this kid you still see him smile every day i see you guys posted all over social media having fun with him this this is just yeah there's uncertainty there and it's kind of like lots of parents have like all parents have they don't know what's going to happen next with their kids and their kids will prove them wrong <laughs> when they get emotionally in in tune with some something they'll they'll prove them wrong so thank you for sharing that i'm just i'm just so i'm excited to see the growth that we're seeing here um and the the progress that's being made if you had asked me two or three years ago when we first started talking would you have found something yet i would have been skeptical um, but you proved me wrong you proved me wrong <laughs> that's where ragav gets it <laughs> <laughs> Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare.